Hi and welcome to The Film File, episode 43. Twas the nightmare before lockdown and everything was quiet all across the land and the only thing you could hear was an Amazon van. How are you doing, Lee? Um, I'm okay. I mean, we just, um, well, we, we just entered into the new phase of a of a sequel that everybody knew that was coming but wasn't really looking forward to it which is lockdown part two lockdown two electric boogaloo yeah you you called it they called it with that title <laughs> yeah so we're back into uh back into the old new routine again of um uh of the world of uncertainty at this time we know that we've got a a proposed at this stage uh a delivery date to be the second because covid will be out of the way for christmas then but at least <laughs> seems to be the plan that everything's closing as of well, we're recording this on a Tuesday uh, closing on a Thursday. That means you are showing the last of the cinema releases tomorrow. I'm, I'm assuming. Tomorrow night. Yep. Uh, we're, we are closing out with um, V for Vendetta, which is probably the most appropriate film to be showing <laughs> at this point in time, especially yeah, since the storyline of that, it was a, a, it was a pandemic that led to the rise of the, government's control measures is it i don't see i, I don't remember it that well i mean i, I, I remember the comments but i didn't think it was a, a pandemic yeah did you did you plan that or was it purely accidental uh, it, it was planned to get in for the 5th of november right but sadly we are now closed on the 5th of november so we brought it forward one day so we can close with v for vendetta which uh, has been has been well well appreciated by our cinema going audience yep i mean bizarrely when I start to type in the note, I start typing up notes on the news thing. Literally, as soon as we finish the previous show, I'll make notes of things that catch my eye. And the first thing that caught my eye last week, the day after we recorded the show, was that European cinemas were closing as countries are going down into lockdown too. Yeah. And then a few days later, the UK announced it. And last time around when we shut down, it was a very like, oh no, what do we do? Oh, and it was all panic. And it was like, we didn't, we, we were, couldn't understand what was going on. This time, as soon as like it was announced at work, we we're just like huh, figures, yeah. and we're nonchalant about it, which we shouldn't be nonchalant about this. Is this because it's the new normal? Oh, we've we've just been we've been sat waiting for it. We've watched as I mean Sheffield's been on tier three for the past two weeks, and we've been watching as the restrictions aren't doing anything, and we basically knew that it was going to be coming at any yeah. point. Now. This segues into the news. Yeah, the only thing I was going to say, the, the most surprising thing out of this, is that it's coming midweek. We were always a couple of weeks behind uh, Europe, behind France and Spain. Yeah. So my surprise was that I, I thought it would happen at the weekend, but it but coming midweek seems, uh, you know, with only three or four days announcement and we're, we're straight into it. So, yeah, that's my surprise. Yeah. But let's get on with the item that we like to call the news. And... Uh, and see how this little old lockdown thing is going to affect our cinema viewing. So, I mean, as you can imagine, there's no films coming out in November now. There pretty much wasn't anyway. Most of the November slate had been stripped, but now this is putting the panic on the December slate. And word has come this morning that Warner Brothers are reportedly considering their upcoming slate with the possibility of moving it all. Which was Wonder Woman, mainly, wasn't Wonder it? Woman is their big Christmas release. If Wonder Woman moves, I think that the whole lot of December will topple. 
even though it's one of the last films to be coming out over that period, it is the big draw one. And if one studio shows a lack of confidence in that time of year, the others are going to go. And when the others include two films from the Fox studios, which are obviously owned by Disney, and we know what they think of cinemas at the moment, (laughs) that'll be Free Guy and Death on the Nile will vanish. Right. Which will only leave, uh, I believe Crude 2 is out is due out for Thanksgiving in the US and over here it was early December. That's possibly going to vanish. And over here, yeah, Peter Rabbit 2 was still holding on to that early December, but come on, that's Easter. That's got to be Easter. Yeah, Peter Rabbit, I'm surprised more so than anything else that didn't go to VOD. But if Wonder Woman 84 does get confirmed to be moving, I would not be surprised with it if within a matter of days, everything from December vanishes, at which point the question needs to be asked, Will cinemas be reopening on the 2nd of December when the lockdown theoretically might come to an end? I say might because it might drag on. It's up to the government whether or not it goes longer. It's at least four weeks. I think genuinely that if the film releases drop, regardless of whether the country opens up, no UK cinemas are going to open until late, late January, early February at the earliest. Well, I think everything is, is, is on hold. I was talking to... Uh one of my people in the know and we were talking about the music scene for next year and where that left me work-wise uh with the films that i've been been uh, slated to do and they were going in all honesty yeah we're not booking anything in we're not booking anything yeah. you know, the news is that all all the tours are going to start again and all the delays you know um, venues are going to start having having bands from sort of may time there's a big question mark on it so we are where we are and, and it's quite strange really that we as you put it this this has become our new normal and we've we've become sort of um numbs to it numb to it this is the way of the world but that kind of does happen when you go through you go through these these huge developments um you know eventually it does become the new normal and we just have to look forward to getting back to if not the old normal then something that was as close to it as possible uh, and i can't see anything happening until there's a there's a vaccine in, in the works with regards to the warner brothers possible slate moving it is worth noting that they are still committed to the cinematic releases unlike disney who have made it quite vocal that their focus is purely on their disney plus service and who cares what cinemas happen warners are still very much now wonder woman is going to come out at the cinemas and contrary to recent rumors they don't intend to do a short release window either because there was speculation that, oh, well, they were going to do like a, a 15-day release window at the cinemas right. and then it comes on video on demand. They have no intention of doing that. So kudos to what I mean. You have to remember that Warners are the ones who supported cinemas at the start by actually giving one of their big hits, Tenet, as a water tester. Yeah. Was it the right film? We've, we've commented multiple times. No, it wasn't the right film to be opening up cinemas with. But at least they tried. Yeah. The other studios now need to step up and they need to try. But they can't whilst we're in lockdown. And this uncertainty means that pretty much every studio, I I say now, December's gone. However. However. Britain might be in lockdown, but the shooting on films which are going into production in the UK is still continuing. Yes, I'd heard, I'd heard that officially. Um, I'm a member of, of the union. And my yep. union basically sent out a, a release saying 
that, that we are not locking down uh, as far as production goes. Yep. Um, we've already commented a few times on the, all the all the measures that are in place around the filming of any productions going on. And shooting on films such as Batman are still going to continue. So there'll be no delays to any films that are, have gone into production in the UK. The delays are only going to be on the exhibition. Right. So we might still see some little images of Batman stood on other sections of Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> But let's let's move away from uh, all this lockdown stuff and into some more stuff in development. Okay, so we've got some uh, some casting news, we've got some uh, development news, we've got some directors attached to project news. What do you want to hear? Let's start off with returning to something that back in June we mentioned. Now, back in June, you might recall that I spoke about how the rights to Hellraiser might be reverting back to Clive Barker. Yes, you did. And it appears you were right. It's now been revealed that he's joined the team of executive producers for a brand new HBO adaptation of his Hellraiser series. Mm. Now, as we spoke back then, Clive Barker was involved in the adaptation of his book, The Hellbound Heart, with the first Hellraiser film. He directed it, didn't he? Yeah, he directed the first film. He was a producer on the second film, and then he slowly worked himself away from it as it diverted away from his whole story aspects. Now, with him being on board with this one, it's kind of a seal of approval to show that the creator of it, who's been very vocal of his feelings of the franchise over the past couple of decades, he's happy with it. In his words, he's delighted the Hellraiser mythology is seeing a new life. It's time the stories went back to their roots. I'm eager to bring a new audience, the most powerful and ancient elements of horror, the darkest evil invading our human lives and how we must find it in ourselves, the power to resist it. Is he talking about the elections? Yes. So it's all about Trump and his rise to power. <laughs> uh, <laughs> have you seen who's right? Who's writing on it and show running? I don't. I've, I know very little about this project apart from the fact that we called it out um, several several episodes ago. Uh, Mark Fairhaven, who was behind Battlestar, he was one of the writers on Battlestar Galactica. That's right. I know his work from. He also was a, a comic creator. Uh, before yep. he worked for Dark Horse Comics and then edged his way into television. He's, he's, a, he's a very good, very good writer. Very good storyteller. Um, he's going to be showrunning and co-writing a lot of the episodes with Michael Doherty, who gave us Trick or Treat. Which, funny enough, uh, I, I watched over the weekend and still absolutely adore. And I love, absolutely uh, love uh, Krampus. I'm completely on board with this i've been you know i've mentioned a good few times how much i love hellraiser and i'd love to see a new imagining of it and hbo generally known for like really good really good productions it's so, kind of interesting crossed. where hbo and hbo max are going because uh, and we talked about this on, on the show about their um about how connected they are to to genre pieces and we, we've just had lovecraft country um, of course, there's the, the Justice League TV series, for want of a better word. They're doing the Green Lantern. Um, they yep. really are getting behind genre-led, um, genre-led projects and vehicles. I think they demonstrated it even with Game of Thrones. Is like they went, okay, let's do fantasy and built up a huge fantasy epic series. The everyone, every other network who's tried to do fantasy, it's kind of lasted maybe two seasons and then vanished. Yeah. But HBO do it right because they have they have confidence in the source material. They don't seem to, oh, well, you must have this kind of likable character. You must have this comedy character. It's like, let the story tell itself. So Hellraiser gets me excited. 
more horror. There's a lot of horror this week. Well, it is post-Halloween. Jordan Peele is producing a remake of The People Under the Stairs. Yes, I saw this. Do you ever? Did you ever see the Wes Craven original? Sadly, no. But okay. it, it's one of them. That, it's one of them that's on my radar to get round to watching, and I've just never, never found the right moment to watch it. I know that it, it wasn't a horror satire. Yeah, it, it was very, very political um, and very, very uh, social un- undertones on it. And um, and that's what I liked about it. And, and to some extent, it's not one of those films where, you, where you're going to sort of shriek because there's a remake, because what it yeah. can bring to modern politics and to, to uh, uh, holding a mirror up to the, to the new world that we're in 20 odd years later. I think it's absolutely rife to be remade. I don't have a problem with that at all. I think Jordan Peele's involvement um, is very key to it as well because the films that he either directs or produces always seem to be social commentaries. Yes. He does love the social commentary aspect. And this what yeah, the, the original film saw a young boy and two adult thieves trapped in a house belonging to a strange Reagan-esque kind of couple. That's right. And it was all about class structure. And the you know what's the true terror? The things that like you don't know about, or the things that you face in your real life. Jordan Peele adapt like help and produce it. I can't wait to see what creative team has surrounds himself on it. I'm interested with pretty much anything that Jordan Peele delivers. Yeah, I know that you only you only caught one episode of the Twilight Zone and didn't quite take to it. I didn't, and I I was so disappointed because I, I'm I had to do a thing recently which was the best TV ever made. And, and the Twilight yeah. Zone was very high on my list, and as I think it's, I think it's absolutely not just classic television, but just perfect storytelling. And subsequent remakes have, have always fallen short. And I thought with Jordan Peele being connected to the new Twilight Zone, and and, and also being somebody who has become a bit of a um, a modern horror, I wouldn't say filmmaker, but storyteller with a social conscience, exactly how Rod Serling was. Yeah. I had high expectations for the for the TV series. I saw one episode, and it really didn't drag me in. Uh, it was I thought it was disappointing. I thought it was muddled. I I've recorded the second season, but I've still not got around to watching it. And the more it goes on, the less I I, I find myself drawn to to watching it. Unless somebody you know tweets in and says this is the second season is absolutely <laughs> perfect at the moment. Well, on that note, <laughs> you're going to tell me otherwise now, aren't you? First season I found was a mixed bag. When it was a good episode, it was a really good episode, but it was very like uh, sometimes great, sometimes oh that um, Dark Black Mirror did that a lot better. This second season I started watching the other day, and I ploughed through the first four episodes back to back because I just found each one was an interesting concept and really well presented. I think that if it's found its confidence with the stories that it's writing for the second season. And I, I think that it's, whilst it's still not as good as the classic episodes, I mean, because the classic episodes are classics. And when it was revived in the late 80s, early 90s, they didn't quite hit the mark either. No. There was a couple of good ones, uh, but there literally was only a couple of good ones. This is starting to surpass that late 80s, 90s one and form forge its own identity at the same time. I think it's finally tapping into what made Twilight Zone stand out. Okay, well, you've got me intrigued by that. I'll, I'll be perfectly honest because uh, I, I thought it, I thought it looked great. I thought it had that sense of gloss and, and felt more in its presentation more like the original Twilight Zone than the uh, than the eighties version and the subsequent nineties, yeah. uh, early two thousands versions. But 
as I said, I wasn't impressed. But you know, maybe I should give it a go. I always want to. I always want to like something. I always want to be one of these people who doesn't write things off and goes back and says, "Yeah, I was wrong. I'll, I'll, I will, I will retry it." It's always worth because sometimes you're just not in the right frame of mind. And I think with Twilight Zone in particular, your expectations are your, your expectations are so high. Yes, that it's hard to disassociate from your love of the old episodes when you're encountering a new interpretation. Oh, absolutely. And especially because that first episode was using the title of one of the classic episodes, one of the most classic episodes, but doing something different with it. So it, it let itself down by building your hype up. I, I couldn't agree more. I, it's exactly how I felt. I mean, why tightly after probably the most, one of the most famous episodes and the one of the most iconic episodes by one of the Twilight Zone's best writers, Richard Matheson, and then uh, failed to deliver. I would rather much much rather have seen a remake than, than what than what we got on it. So from the people under the stairs to a young man locked in a basement. Story of my life. Scott Derrickson is adapting Joe Hill's Black Phone for Bloomhouse and Universal. We, I know we've got a lot of Bloomhouse uh, uh, news today. And um, Scott Derrickson was uh, originally to do the Doctor Strange sequel, but, but that didn't yeah. happen. What do we know about this? I've not read this particular Joe Hill novel the only one i've read in all honesty and i thought the adaptation wasn't too bad was haunt um i've not read this one either i've i've not read a lot of joe hill despite being a huge stephen king fan i've never really latched onto his work but every time that i see one of the adaptations or read a synopsis of it i feel that i should be reading joe hill and this one the uh, black phone is the story of a young man who's abducted and locked in a basement that is stained with the blood of all the murdered children in the cellar is an old black phone that each night rings with calls from the dead. And colour me intrigued. Yeah, that that alone just sounds like, yeah, that that's the perfect juicy. This is this is Joe Hill emulating King. This is pure King aspect in there because Joe Hill does like all he does everything. He does fantasy. He does horror. He does adventure. Marvelous creations. And like I say, I've not read much of his stuff, but I feel that I should have done. As you know, I'm a huge fan of Lock and Key. Not so much oh, the, yeah. the Netflix series, which I did enjoy, but the, the comic books yeah. were, were absolutely fantastic. Before the Netflix series came out, Humble Bundle did a deal on all the volumes of Lock and Key, which I picked up, and I ploughed through all of them in great. no time. Really are good. Such a good read. Scott Derrickson is a name that I keep my eye on. I think he's uh, very creative, especially in the horror aspects. So looking forward to that one. Excellent. And again with the horror, and again with Bloomhouse. The horror. Patrick the horror. Wilson is going to direct the fifth Insidious film. Okay. Have you seen any of the Insidious films? I saw the first two. I thought the first one was fantastic. I thought it had yeah. the right amount of, of, of jump scares. I thought that and the first Conjuring were the way forward in, in new horror, in something that we'd not seen in a long time. Uh, yeah, with, with Conjuring and Insidious, this these were the kind of films that really marked this new wave of horror that Blumhouse have become known for and yeah we've got to five films however the third and fourth films weren't direct sequels they spun the tale back in time to serve as prequels filling out some backstory to elements from the first two films this fifth film is going to return back to the family of the first two films it's going to be set 10 years on where patrick wilson will be reprising his role along with directing it and the role of the son will once again be played by the same guy, Ty Simpkins, who's now obviously 10 years older. You know what's just surprised me with this entire conversation is that I, 
didn't realize there'd been that many insidious uh, movies. I, I, I worked out that in the first two. I knew there was a yep. third, which I missed. After that, I thought they'd finished. I really, really thought they'd finished with three. After the third one, which was just called Chapter Three, there was then Insidious The Last Key in 2018, yeah, uh, which does was, again, a huge success. I remember, I remember the posters for The Last Key. Mm. That's about all my memory is. But Lee Wannell, who was behind the scenes writing the first four films, hasn't written the screenplay for this one, but he's come up with the story. And Scott Teams has adapted it to screenplay. Uh, but this is going to be a, a, a first directorial outing for Wilson. And it makes sense for him to be directing something that he's been a staple part of since the first film. And he's always a reliable actor. Whatever you put him yeah. in, he is uh, he's always solid. He's, he's one of these performers that, you know, he's, he's within a degree, he's not your typical leading man. He's got the looks for it and he's got the charisma for it. He's one of those actors who, uh, who is a character actor that happens to look like a leading man. So he's, he's not he's not a box office draw, but when it, whatever he does, whatever he turns up and does, whether it's Night Owl, whether it's um, it's the Conjuring series, he just he just always delivers. And the writer of Twelve Years a Slave and the creator of American Crime, uh, John Ridley, is going to write and direct a paranormal thriller movie for guess which studio? Ah. Blumhouse. <laughs> John Ridley's had an interesting career. Um, he originally wrote the original script that became Three Kings, uh, as you said, 12, 12 Years a Slave. He was, he was attached for a long time with the Marvel project, which doesn't seem to have happened or has not seen the light of day yet. And he's currently writing some comics as well for DC. Yep. Um, he's, he's a great writer, and it's, I'm, I'm intrigued to see where he goes with it. Uh, well, the film that he's going to be ad adapting is adapted from an article called Project Poltergeist which is based on true events set in the 1960s and follows the unexplained events surrounding the first alleged haunting in a public house project that terrified a young boy in New Jersey. In a statement, Ridley has said, this is an incredible true life narrative of a young man dealing with horrors, both paranormal and racially systemic, in a community that is scarred by hate, yet ultimately brought together by hope. I'm intrigued. Again, Colour Me Intrigued yep. Part 2. It's, it's, it's Blue Mouse, Blue Mouse, Blue Mouse, constantly mm. this week. They must have just had a big... Okay, these were the projects that were green lighting over the next two years. So much blooming news. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see we did that. <laughs> uh, sticking with horror, Neil Marshall. I was just about to say, he, I have a Neil Marshall story, but you beat me to it. I'll let you go. Yeah, the, the director who started off with, known for horror, he started off with Descent. Which was fantastic. Well, he started off with um, Dog Soldiers, didn't he? Um, oh, yeah, Dog Soldiers. Let's uh, not forget Dog Soldiers. Which is half of a good film. Um, the guts are out, Sarge. <laughs> yeah, half of it is a good film. The other half is uh, it, it got tacky where it could have it could have been a, an absolute classic horror movie and just sort of fell apart yeah. about halfway through. The, the Descent is is an absolutely fantastic, well directed, claustrophobic, claustrophobic, tense, tense uh, uh, a unique horror movie. And and to some extent, Neil Marshall should have that should have been the the, the, the setting up point. Now I know. He's done some fantastic television. Some of, some of the episodes he did of uh, of Game of Thrones were amazing. But he got let down yeah. by the last Hellboy movie through, from what yeah. I've heard, no fault of his own. I mean, he, he's always been a big fan of, like, film and action adventure. I mean, yeah, let's be honest, his films like Doomsday were just like, let's make a British Mad Max. 
Um, Centurion was uh, yeah, a I've very underappreciated actually. film when it came out. I really like Centurion. I've got a lot of yeah, uh, a lot of love for it that just, film. It just did nothing when it got released, which was a shame because it deserved a lot more. Well, after the disgrace of Hellboy, which he kind of distanced himself from just as it was getting released, and I don't blame him because that was not a Neil Marshall film. He's now going to be adapting a film called The Lair. What do we know about it? Anything? It's the tale of an RAF pilot, Kate Sinclair, on her final flight who shot down over Afghanistan. She finds refuge in an underground bunker, but her arrival awakens deadly man-made creatures, half human and half alien, and her escape leads leads the ravenous creatures to an army base. That sounds very Neil Marshall, doesn't it? Yeah, it sounds. I mean, the, the underground bunker, awaking deadly creatures. That's descent, and then taking it to an army base. That's doomsday. So he's mixing two pro, like his own kind of like project ideas together into a perfect film for him. He said it, it's a it's a joyous return to a, that visceral kind of horror that he really loves doing, and I can't wait to see him deliver it because. When he does horror, he does it really well. This is why we thought Hellboy should have been so good. Yeah, I was so looking forward to it, and I was so let down by it. He was reined in so much on that, and you can see you can see where they panicked, and they went, oh, no, um, um, let's not do that, let's not do that. And that's not a Neil Marshall film, like I've said. Well, from what so, I hear on Hellboy, he wasn't even, from my people in the know, he wasn't even allowed to edit the film. Yeah. It wasn't his film. And if you if you look at it, if you watch, if you watch it carefully, there are, there are shots where... You are crying out for close-ups and things like that, which aren't there because I'm assuming they never got shot. I've read the original script and it's a, it's a really good script. Um, so it wasn't in the writing and it wasn't in the direction. It was purely it was in, in the, the editing of the, of, of the producers just wanting to do something something else with it. It wasn't the big. Do you know the actor uh, Donald Logan? Are you familiar with him? I'm not. No. He is an American actor that you will probably remember from the TV series Gotham. I think he played Harvey Bullock in that. Um, oh, he's one yeah. of those actors that turns up. Um, he was in a, an amazing series which only lasted a few episodes. If you ever get a chance to see it, called Terriers, which was a, a, a private detective thing, but but it was he was absolutely fantastic in it. Anyway, he's headed for the uh, um, Resident Evil origin film which I think is the one that you mentioned last week. Uh, yeah, so uh, he's going to be playing a chief, the police chief. Of Recount of Recount I City, believe. I believe. Yep. Um, I mean, I'm looking forward to this reboot of Resident Evil. And it, like I've said, as much as I love Paul W.S. Anderson, and I shamelessly admit that, <laughs> I do want to see a more darker and closer to the games kind of adaptation. And this looks like it's going to be a lot more horror than action. Uh, but yeah, I mean that that means that he's joining like quite a decent lineup of cast because Robbie Amell's already in there. Yeah, Hannah John Kamen's in there. Tom Hopper is in there as well from Umbre- Umbrella Academy. Yeah, it's a great list of names. It's it's a project that could really deliver because the films sadly only had the niche audience. They had nothing to do with the games, and they didn't tap into the horror by the end of it. And we would like to see a Resident Evil film that at least reflects the first two games. The tension of the film. I mean, oh. even if they just have like every five minutes a, a window breaks and a dog jumps through. I mean, that'll be enough. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see it set in a uh, police station in Raccoon City, and because that yep. is what that's what what made Resident Evil work. It was that you are in the movie, you are in uh, yeah. in a zombie apocalypse. The things they carried 
is a film which is coming from Rupert Sanders, who gave us such great films as Ghost in the Shell and Snow White and the Huntsman. Well, he's a great visualist. I'll give give you that. I mean, I, I funny enough, I watched um, Snow White and the Huntsman again recently. Uh, I showed it to 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 the child, and um, who absolutely loved it. But despite all the all the elements that didn't work in it, the one thing that did work was was the unique look of it. It's an absolutely glorious looking fairy tale of a film that, that while it's fantastical, also carries this thing of having the weight of it of, of being fantastical in a, in a reality that felt real. Um, mm. And all the problems with Ghost in the Shell, it never wasn't a bad looking film. That's true. He put it together well. It's just that there wasn't really anything worth doing in there. Mm. Um, well, he's adapting Tim O'Brien's collection of stories about a platoon of young soldiers of Alpha Company and their frontline experiences, the things they carried. It will focus on the, young, the soldiers moving from village to village amidst chaos and confusion as they battle for their sanity, navigating physical, mental and emotionally challenging terrains. The okay. cast lineup is looking pretty saucy. Who we got? You've already got the impressive cast of Ty Sheridan, Stephen James, Bill Skarsgård, Pete Davidson, Ashton Sanders, Martin Sandsmeyer, Moses Arias, and Angus Cloud, and just added in the past few days, Tom Hardy. That's an, it is an impressive list, and it'd be interesting to see that director do something that's that's more down to earth, because I don't know what he's yeah. done since, since Ghost in the Shell. It's a, a war film from him. I mean, you said, you've said that despite the overall effect of the films, they look great. So what can he do with war to make the horrors of this story actually stand out. Interesting project to keep a lookout on, if mm. only for the names involved. Right, let's move from horror to sci-fi. <laughs> and definitely done, I may, I may say. And we've spoken about it a couple of times, Roland Emmerich's Moonfall. I mean, let's be honest, we're not expecting much from this film except for joyous explosions, disasters, buildings tumbling as the story sees the moon is knocked from its orbit and is hurtling towards Earth. Yada, 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 disasters. Well, Donald Sutherland and Emmy Ikwoko, who was in Inhumans, have both joined the cast uh, with Sutherland playing a NASA archive keeper who knows the truth about the Apollo landings. Oh, they're going down that route. <laughs> well, it's, you know, you can, you can look at a Roland Emmerich film and you know the beats when the film starts. There's, there's a, a pattern to all of its storytelling. Yeah, the the joy of a Roland Emmerich film is he is a modern day Irwin Allen. Everything yeah. is on the screen. If if one one action sequence doesn't land, don't worry. There's going to be a bigger one along thirty seconds to two minutes later, and and that's the thing with Roland Emmerich. You know exactly what you what you're buying into. I didn't see uh, Midway. I know that's Roland Emmerich stepping outside of his usual comfort zone. But even that had had the certain key elements from what I hear that, that you expect from Roland Emmerich. Uh, and, and it seems like the perfect antidote to 2020, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> what more can go wrong? Throw the moon. Throw the moon at the planet. I mean, yeah. I, why does it have to be hurtling towards Earth? Why could it not be hurtling off into space and it's actually an adaptation of Space 1999? I was just about to say that. <laughs> and also, with regards sci-fi, Adam Sandler, everyone's favourite comic. Move on. Everyone's favourite actor who tries to do comedy, but when he does acting, he's really good. He's got another more dramatical role in the pipeline for Netflix. Now I'm impressed. 
he seems to be balancing his output these days, like between the dramatic ones like Uncut Gems and Mayorowitz stories, and then really bad comedies like Hubie Halloween. Do not watch. It's dreadful. Well, his next project lined up is a sci-fi, which is going to be directed by Johan Renk. Who did um, Chernobyl. Yeah. And from what I know, is doing the Last of Us, at least the, the first episode of the Last of Us TV series. Yeah. So that's that's good hands to be directing. And the story of the film is going to be based on the novel The Spacemen of Bohemia, which sees an astronaut sent to the edge of the galaxy to collect mysterious dust, but finds his earthly life falling to pieces. And the only voice that can help him is that of a creature from the beginning of time that lurks in the shadows of his ship. If, if you're describing that, that is certainly not a film you would connect Adam Sandler to in any no. any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, this this is the kind of projects that I wish he'd grab onto a lot more because this sounds like something. Yeah, this sounds like your kind of sci-fi. Go back to as like as far back as two thousand and one. Yeah, the the one man on a mysterious mission and what's going on. It'd be interesting to see Sandler with this because I loved Uncut Gems. Yeah, it was fantastic. But it was it was a chaos frenzy of voices in that film. Whereas this will give Sandler a chance to grow a chance to develop and hold the attention. You know, can he be as good as Matt Damon when Matt Damon was trapped on Mars in The Martian? <laughs> well, when do, when do we know this? Oh, come on, it's Netflix. We don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's Netflix. It might land tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, remember we, Paradox. We, Netflix, never, Netflix basically just tell you we're making films and then they'll back away and a week before it's due out, they suddenly start pitching it. So this is just in the pipeline. I know he's got another Netflix film in the works at the moment, which is another one of his bad comedies. So it'll be moving on to it after there. I imagine this is going to be back end of next year, early 2022, by the time we see it. And to wrap up the news, Gorillaz, the cartoon band led by a cartoonish Damon Albarn, are finally, after two decades where they should have already done it, Making a movie. You see, this is one of those things for me where, as you just said, we've always expected it. However, I, it does feel a, a decade too late, if not two decades too late. The, the band is making a bit of a resurgence at the moment with some new material coming out. So it just seems about time. Damon Alburn has spilled the beans on it by saying, we've signed contracts, we've begun scripts and stuff, making an animated film. That's kind of abstract. It's a big risk for a movie studio because they're very expensive. If you're telling a slightly obtuse, weird story that only sometimes makes any sense, it's quite difficult. That's what we've discovered. But we, we will do it. We're doing it. I see a lot of people doing animated videos these days, but I don't think they really touch the quality of ours. We're more in the world of Studio Ghibli. Okay, Damon. Okay. Maybe don't compare yourself <laughs> to Studio Ghibli. But, I mean, if you've seen any of the music videos of Gorillaz or any of the little short animations that they used to have on their website and things, you'll know what to expect from this. You're not going to expect... This is going to be the Gorillaz Yellow Submarine, basically. Yes, that was the first thing that made me think of was that kind of surrealist uh, animated yeah. film. Now, I've, I've, got, I've loved the Gorillaz since day one. I've got a fondness for that whole idea of, like, it's more about the band and less about who's behind it. And despite the fact that we know who's behind it, it's it allowed the artists involved in it to generate new personalities and do something a bit different and out of their normal tone. So I'm I'm interested to see what they do with this. Fingers crossed, it fits the gorillas 
framework. Although, what is the gorilla's framework? Because it's absolutely bonkers, to be honest with you. And that is the item we like to call the news. So if you're enjoying this particular episode of The Film File and you want to hear more and this is your first time, and why is it your first time? And what's been holding <laughs> you back? Then you can check us out on all of the platforms, that's uh, Spotify, iTunes, you name it, we're on it. And if you've enjoyed the show and you still haven't subscribed, why? But if you're that new person, go on, treat yourself, subscribe. Treat yourself. <laughs> Just treat yourself. <laughs> Okay, so at this point in the program, we usually set Andy the challenge to catch up with a, a classic piece of film, you know, preferably an Oscar film, that, that he's missed. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, we had the very, very sad news of the passing of probably one of the most iconic, I was going to say British actors, but I'm going to say Scottish actors um, of, of all time, really. And that's the sad passing of Sir Sean Connery. Mr. Bond. James Bond. You said you wanted to know how to get Capone. What gives you the right to fire on my ship? Those words that I read today, I didn't write them. Jamal Wallace did. And I command you now all to fight! A dragon would never hurt a soul unless they try to hurt him first. Stay back if you value your life. Your best. Losers always whine about their best. Never lose your temper. Do you know much about guns, Mr. Bond? No. I know a little about women. So Saturday, which was uh, Halloween, 31st of October, probably everybody's phone pinged with a, a news update all at the same time to inform us of the sad passing of, of Sean Connery. Um, aged 90 years old, so he'd had a, a, a fantastic innings, uh, but left behind him uh, a fantastic legacy of work uh, and probably one of the most beloved actors, not only for, for, for playing Bond, but just a ton of other, other other great films that we're going to talk about in, in, in a little while. And of course, you know, in our very first few episodes, Sean Connery came up with was talking about Highlander, didn't he, Andy? We spoke about him in Highlander in episode 15. He also popped up in another one of our favourite films of yesteryear, Untouchables, which we covered in episode 18. He's, he's an actor that we've kind of grown up with him because his career started in the mid-50s on the screen. And being people born in the <coughs> 70s um, and possibly earlier. I'm not going to say how old you are, Lee. Yeah, don't. Just carry on. Keep moving. We, we were introduced to him through the roles that made him so iconic. And nothing was more iconic than, obviously, Bond. So as kids, we saw his roles as Bond pretty much every Easter and Christmas on TV because they were a staple of the television viewing and that's how we discovered him. And it was from there that we started We started noticing him in other things from that point onwards. He'd already had two decades of career almost by the time I stumbled upon him. So there was a lot of films that I then started to notice him in that were also getting shown on afternoons or evening viewings on TV. One of my earliest memories of going to the cinema was my parents taking me to see Diamonds Are Forever. And I, I don't know if that's the first Bond film I'd seen or I'd seen... 
Doctor No uh, from Russia with Love on television. I'm, I'm not quite sure of the time scale, but I went to see um, Diamonds Are Forever, and and it was last the last proper Bond film that, that Connery was in, and it was kind of the move into the sort of sillier Bond. But I remember just thoroughly enjoying it, and and I've been a Bond fan ever since, even through the sort of the highs and lows of of, of some of the other entries. Um, but Connery was just just an enigmatic. A, a proper star and there's a reason that he was called the, the greatest living scotsman because he just had that gravitas on screen and and other than bond he, he was in some just absolutely a, a, amazing movies that when you start to look at the, the films they were he was in and, and the breadth of the characters that he played he, he it's well it's difficult not to think of him as bond there's so much so much good work in, in his career isn't there yeah, I mean, you know, from films like The Man Who Would Be King in 75 to like, and in the 70s, he did a wide, diverse thing. The Man Who Would Be King, you had sci-fi nonsense of Zardoz, which is a film close to my heart. I, de- I discovered that only a few years ago. It had always been like legendary, that image of him in the orange trunks with the thigh length boots as, oh my God, what am I looking at? And when I watched the film, I was expecting to just be laughing on unintentionally throughout it but i found myself actually embracing the themes of that film and whilst it does fall apart towards the end it's a film that i love to go back to now it's it's great it was john borman film and it was it was an atypical 70s film when when directors had the power to make the films that they wanted to make it, it's all over the place um it, of course it's almost iconic with the image of, of connery <laughs> in it i mean it's so so much the opposite of of the um of his look of, of, of playing James Bond, that um, yeah, you know, you were, people were shocked and stunned. It, it seems a little bit silly now. For some reason, it, I don't remember it feeling silly back in the day. I remember posters for it, and I'd been been uh, been very young. But it was it was one of those those times when directors could go anywhere they wanted to do if they got the budget and kind of make the the films that they wanted to make. And, it, and it's a it's a truly unique and original film. The seventies also saw the first great train robbery. The, I'd like to say it's a classic, even though I know that it's not, disaster movie Meteor. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've extolled my love of disaster movies quite often. And Meteor is one of those last ones of that era of the 70s, because by the time it got to the 80s, an airplane came along and made disaster movies seem a bit daft. They faded out. Also, let's not forget that the 70s gave us Robin and Marion. Which is an absolutely amazing film. Uh, for those who've not seen it, Richard Lester directed. Uh, it's about it's about Robin Hood in his in his later life, uh, um, back from the Crusades. It's it's a touching it's a buddy movie in many ways. It's a it's a touching look at um, uh, what becomes of uh, the difference between a man and a legend. Uh, and Connery, for me, has never been better in that film. I think he's he's absolutely brilliant in it. It's it's a great film. Absolutely love it. Um, it didn't fare too well at the box office from what I know, but if you've not had the opportunity to check it out, check out Robin and Marion. It will be out there somewhere. The 80s were the defining years of my childhood when it came to film, and the 80s were definitely a defining era for himself. He popped up in Highlander Untouchables that we've already mentioned, Hunt for Red October, where he played the most Scottish-Russian submarine commander that you'll ever know, The Name of the Rose, which was another example of him taking on a dramatic role, and he was cast alongside a very young Christian Slater in his very first role. And then he had cameo appearances in films such as Time Bandits and, of course, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. 
the eighties were of huge impact for him. So many names of films that stood out and he was just iconic in them. Maybe not never say never again. We try to forget about that one. Maybe not. But but everything else through that decade. Yeah, you've got I mean the the untouchables remade his career. You've got to remember that at one point he, he wasn't as, as big a star as he had been. I mean, he'd gone through all those those fantastic 70s movies like uh, Murder on the Orient Express, Richard Attenborough's um, A Bridge Too Far, of course, that you mentioned uh, Zardoz. Yep. And then he's, he's, his star started to slip a little bit and he, and he wasn't the big big pull. He wasn't the box office pull that he, that he had been. And he did some, some quite odd choices. I mean, Highlander, to a degree, was in during that period when he, when he wasn't a big star and, and was working a lot cheaper. Than he, than he had been, you know, especially at the height of his, his Bond films. It's interesting that Highlander came out the same year as The Name of the Rose. And, you know, Highlander is beloved by people of our generation. And The Name of the Rose was critically acclaimed and a huge, like, pre- he, he became a huge presence in that film. Then followed the following year with Untouchables, which, you know, gave him the Oscar, was um, the big outcome from that one. And that put Connery back on the map of being not just a, a, as a great actor, but as as a as the big star that that he, that he was. I'm not saying that he, he wasn't a big star through that period, but he he definitely started to it, the light started to wane a little bit. But he followed that with you know Indiana Jones and Last Crusade again, almost playing against character. He was kind of the anti Bond to Harrison yeah. Ford's reimagining that George Lucas and Spielberg always saw it as their own their own Bond. So. Then he started to get much more complex roles. He was getting films like The Hunt for Red October, Russia House, a film that I absolutely adore in all its, its wonderful silliness, but because of the heart of it is, is Sean Connery, is The Rock, that came out in 1996. The best Michael Bay film ever. The 90s were a bizarre time for um, Connery's career because, yeah, The Rock, Michael Bay, possibly his best film that he ever made. Yes. Michael Bay before he became Michael Bay, as far as I'm concerned. And whilst it could be seen as a Nicolas Cage film, let's be honest, Connery was the star power in that film. Connery Absolutely. was the draw. And he played it brilliantly. He, play, he played this only man to have escaped the rock brilliantly. It was, was, there was a little hint of... Sorry. There was, I think, were you about to say there's a little hint of Bond? No, I was just about to say there is a little <laughs> hint of Bond in it. And they play that wonderfully and, and it's fantastic. And then he followed that with Entrapment, which is an okay film. Again, saved by by having Connery in it at his most charismatic. Between those two films, he unfortunately popped up in the Avengers. Which, yeah, well, uh, it was a muddled film that, again, it's another one of those films that we've mentioned so many times as being savaged in the editing and not reflecting what the original idea was. And this was one that the American studio didn't quite get the Britishness of the Avengers. And tried to dilute it, and that lost all the love for it. This could it could have been a great turn because he, he he played the villain Sir August Winter with absolute pantomime menace, like you should have with the Avengers. But in the film that was released, it didn't quite work. I've never seen it in in, in its entirety. I've seen bits and pieces of it, so I just wasn't drawn to it. They they led. Around that Avengers time, some major disappointments. There was First Night, which is interesting. Uh, it yeah. just doesn't doesn't work. Just Cause. You mentioned the Avengers. Um, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is the film that basically finished his career. 
and he decided to call it a day with that. Yeah, his, on, his onset disputes with um, Stephen Norrington convinced Connery that it was time to retire from films, and it it basically stopped Stephen Norrington's career from that point onwards. Yeah, I don't think he's done anything since that. He's been offered a few things, he's been rumoured on a few things, but he's not made anything else since. But even though he retired from films, back in 2012, he also he did a voice role and was executive producer on Sir Billy. And he also narrated a documentary called Ever to Excel. And that was the last work that he made for films. Even though he's been enjoying his retirement, for the past two decades, no one's forgotten him. No. And everyone's no, always, there's new people discovering his films every day. And for someone with such a legacy behind him and such a wide and diverse career, it's safe to say that his memory will live on within the industry forever. He will always be known. He will, he will be missed. He absolutely missed. I mean, there's uh, there is a, a certain style of, of, of screen actor you know he was a big guy and he'd been a bodybuilder he'd been in the navy he was he was as tough as nails i i know stories of him uh from from the highlander films of what he was like um from what i gather he was uh he could he could swear like any scotsman um <laughs> he had a reputation for such amazing bad language but you know you believed him in a hard man role because you believed he was a hard man but he, he could be sensitive, you know, in, in the roles he played. Again, just check out Robin and Marion. There were yeah. films that he turned down. He turned down the role of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings and saying that he didn't under, understand the script, that he was reportedly offered uh, 30 million along with 15% of the box office receipt, which would have yeah. earned him over 400 million. Uh, he turned down the opportunity to appear as the architect in the Matrix trilogy. He did do some voiceover, did the voiceover of the game version of From Russia With Love, which I've never played. He was offered, but they thought it might be too cute. The role that eventually went to Albert Finney in Skyfall, but it would have that would have just tied it in with that the, the Bond character was just a, a just an agent name, and I suppose that would have finally put an end to the theories that everyone's had if they had made that appearance. But again, I think it would have been more stunt casting. Yeah. Sir Sean Connery, 25th of August, 1930 to October the 31st, 2020. What a life, what a legacy, what a legend. There's nothing we can add to that. I, I, I totally agree with you, absolutely. A, a great star, a brilliant actor, um, and a wonderful screen presence. My time here is over. You must go and search out Katana. It'll take the power of you both to destroy the shield. Will I ever see you again? Who knows, Highlander? Who knows? Go. So next week, Andy, uh, back to your classic films. And I think the film that I set you was The Goodbye Girl. It seems so long ago. It was, yes. So long ago. So we'll be, we'll be back to that next week. And I'll feed back my thoughts on Goodbye Girl. Right, so we have a couple of reviews for you. Um, a film that Andy and I both saw, which is The Craft Legacy. A film that Andy saw, which sounds like I'm glad that I missed. Um, <laughs> that Andy's going to talk about. But let's jump in with The Craft Legacy. We are bound to each other. New school. You can meet some new friends. I'm bad. What is all this? Witchcraft doesn't have to be a scary thing. 
Webb's cast is about to make Timmy nice. It's where Timmy Andrews was found dead. We're summoning something evil. We're not safe. What do you want from me? Craft Legacy tells the story of Lily, who, with her mother, Helen, played by Michelle Monaghan, decides to move in with a self-help guru boyfriend, played by David Duchovny of X-Files fame. She's a bit of a lonely teenager, is Lily, played by Kaylee Spini. Um, she's had a life rooted, but she finds a new group of friends with an, an eclectic witch's coven that they, they do after, after school. And at first, of course, like the original craft, they have fun flexing their magical powers until the story turns to sort of darker events. So this is a, an update to the of the basic concept of the 1996 film. Uh, this time, uh, actor turned writer-director Zoe Lister-Jones has invoked um, the similar sort of spirits, the same sort of feel. It's not a reboot per se, it's a continuation of, of the craft storyline. There are elements to it which are pretty much the same. New girl joins this coven and he's forced to adapt to the change of her life and circumstances, which ends up going down the darker turn. But there are elements which really, which are the interesting elements, which really kind of bring it up to date. For me, it's, it's kind of Riverdale light. Uh, it's not yeah. as scary as Sabrina, but it did feel, and I know you're going to talk about this in a bit more in depth, it did feel that we were watching episode one of a TV series uh, as opposed to a film. It didn't feel like we were watching episode one. It felt like we were watching parts of each episode from 10 episodes. Because the refreshing part of The Craft Legacy is that it doesn't simply copy and paste the plot of the original film. It does something different with the concept to serve as a sequel without repeating what's already be happened. But it puts too many elements in play. And I'm not talking about wind, earth, fire and water. See what I did there. Yes. Um, Very good, actually. It throws out far too many elements without having the slightest idea what it's supposed to be doing with them. And the whole feeling is that someone came up with 10 episodes of a TV series, was told, no, no, that'll cost too much. and went... Well, uh, if I just throw the script notes up in the air and then just pick a few random pages and put them together, we'll go with that. Because when it works, it works well. And it introduces characters with intrigue and mystery behind them and a strange past and then does nothing with them. You could get forgotten about. It felt really as though it had gone through an edit and then gone through the edit again and again to either get it down as a rating or or let's pick up the pace on it because there were there were plots which sort of appeared and disappeared there was uh, a, there's a lead character in it whose backstory is is murky but the reason for doing what they're doing absolutely remains a mystery by the end of the film and, yeah. and the ending just sort of comes at you uh, out of nowhere and you kind of accept that this is it it's a very anticlimactic finale to it yeah, for something that's set up to to be, because the the, the interesting element was this was the sisterhood element of these yeah. girls. Now, I think I looked at you and thought, I'm, okay, I'm gonna I sit through this film because these are squealy teenage girls uh, and squealy teenage actors, but they were kind of on the nose of being squealy teenage girls. I thought they hit that <laughs> absolutely right. I think the cast in general were great. I think that the the young teenage girls they they felt real 
Yes. They felt natural. And I think pretty much the whole cast were great, except for one one person, David Duchovny. Who just sort of feels as though he wandered into it and didn't really know what to do with the character being he'd been given. At, at times, I was convinced that they just had a waxwork dummy of him and they were just like, I'm animating it because he just seemed lifeless, emotionless, and absolutely nothing to him. Even though he's supposed to be quite an intriguing character, you didn't feel it and you didn't care. But I just, again, felt that though there were scenes that he'd shot that, that were more on the cutting edge. That had vanished. Because they didn't make any sense as to what his motivation was and, and why he was this person or why he, ha- he was having a, a relationship with uh, Lily's mother, for instance. It, it, yeah. Little things like that that just took away from the dynamic of, of what the story should be about, which was this, these four female friends kind of bonding. And now, now people are going to critique it for its its woke elements, but those are the elements that I like. There's there's a, a, a change in a, in, a, in a major character, which again, unfortunately, goes nowhere. But for while that character is on screen, is, is, it was an absolutely fantastic idea. Yeah, it's it's a moment that is a result of a spell, and it could have it could have been played just for a one shot revenge laugh moment. But instead, it become it becomes more or less the heart of the film and one of the most interesting aspects of the whole story. And it's one of them that, whilst it's happening, you're just like, oh, wow, they're going somewhere different with this. This is and amazing. It really did, didn't and, it? It really did feel that. And then it kind of just ends, and it's like, oh, right. I felt like that should have been over the next three episodes or something, but um, okay. And this is the problem, is that every time it introduces something interesting, it just shifts it aside as quick as it can. And whether it's down to the editing, whether it's down to trying to do too many things in one thing, film, whether it's trying to set up a whole franchise clumsily, who knows? But it just feels sloppy. Yeah. It feels that it thinks it's cleverer than it is, and it's not. But it feels disappointing more than anything else because you can see you can see the potential within there. You can see everything that should work. But you get to the end of it and go, oh, was that all they could do with it? It's such an absolute shame of a film because it could have been so much better. If it had focused just on the key story, it could have been better. Yeah, there were tantalising threads, some really good ideas in there that didn't mm. pay off. Uh, some even left dangling. Uh, and unfortunately, it just felt like a, a mixed bag when the heart of it was the relationship between these four girls. And, and so therefore, I think the original craft is probably more satisfying than, than this is, to, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, you, you said like if any like some people might complain that it's too woke. Clearly, those people have never watched the original craft yeah. because that's the whole concept. It's all about girl power, femininity, and rising to power within like in a dominantly male like society. Loads of ideas, poorly presented. We're not going to see another craft film for at least another twenty years at this rate. Okay, so moving on from the craft, which is, seems to be a, a shared disappointment for both of us. It sounds like the next film that you saw, which I, I bailed on, and probably for the best reason in retrospect, tell us about The Burnt Orange Heresy, which is not one of those titles which just slips off the tongue. So, The Burnt Orange Heresy, the premise of the film is that a pretentious art critic who's a bit strapped for cash gets a chance to speak with a reclusive artist whose work always appears to suffer fiery ends. One stipulation that he has when he's introduced to this artist is that he steals one of the artist's most recent pieces for a wealthy art collector played by Mick Jagger. 
However, things aren't all that they seem, and the film enters the dark underworld of art with theft, conspiracy, hoaxes, and even <gasps> murder. Sounds exciting. It, it, well, you've, you've kind of got me on the intrigue. The fact it's got Mick Jagger in is is another level that that raises it for for me to want to go and see it. But I do know for a fact this is one of those uh, um, those films that's probably best described as a log line and actually seen. Story wise, it sounds like it should be juicy and it should be sizzling neo-noir, and it's not. It thinks it's a neo-noir, but it's not. It's a yawn fest that is as pretentious and plodding as the worst art, tri- art critic himself. Maybe that was a bit of self-referential. I don't know. But the lead actors, Elizabeth Debicki as Bernice, she has zero chemistry with Clay Bangs as James' character, who's the critic, which makes their sizzling and fiery wild romance utterly dull within the first five minutes you're just introduced to them and they meet each other and then it cuts to a sex scene that is clearly inserted because there's no way that you can believe that they will ever be attracted to each other unless you actually see it and you just sit there going oh yeah whatever people say that do we really need sex scenes in films this is what they're on about you don't need this and then Mick Jagger's introduced as the wealthy collector and he out acts the two of them now as trained actors Becky and Bang need to question whether they need to go back to acting school if Mick Jagger's out acting them. He's sizzlingly, marvellously, creepily devious. You don't know where his head's going at any point. And then he leaves it after he's set up the role. So he's only in it for a few minutes and then he disappears. Donald Sutherland crops up as the artist called Jerome Debney. And he briefly lights up the screen when he's on, like, he's introduced to the pair. And then we're back to bang and Debecky and we lose Donald Sutherland from the film and there's nothing to these characters to make you care there's nothing to make you believe in them and it doesn't help that everyone in the film seems to refer to bang's character as young seriously he's 52 years old everyone's referring to him as a young critic I think that this script was written for someone younger in mind and they forgot to change it when they went to film. The, the trailers sold it on Mick Jagger and Donald Sutherland being on there. And they're barely in it for five minutes each. Which means that there's 90 minutes without them that the trailer didn't want to, to let you know about. There's nothing that really ignited in me. It felt tired. It felt cliche. And by the time the end came up, I was just glad it was over. So that certainly sounds like it's not worth the time, which... With lockdown, it certainly won't be. But there are still films to see that you won't be able to see in the cinema, be able to see on a streaming service. So we're just going to give you a quick roundup. Some of the films worth seeing that are streaming to a TV near you. Amazon this week bring us the excellent Whiplash. Oh, it's an amazing film. Fantastic film. Love it. There. Powerful, intense. If you want to see performances that just really grip and captivate you, Whiplash is the one that drops this Thursday. Uh, you mentioned it briefly last week, but don't forget Spider-Verse lands on the 6th on Netflix. And also the SpongeBob movie Sponge on the Run, which was the one that was supposed to have been coming out at the cinemas this summer. That lands on Netflix on the 5th this week. You mentioned this last week, got a chance to see it, and that's Over the Moon uh, animated movie, which is just absolutely beautiful. Most animated movie musicals have long been the preserve of uh, of Disney. This has done something absolutely unique. It is one of the most gorgeous animated films that I've ever seen. Isn't it beautiful? It's it's just got, got a really good underlying heart to the tale as well. 
which is what all good animation should have. Over on Now TV this week, another one of our favourites from earlier this year, Doctor Sleep. Yeah, I want to see that again. It's one of those Stephen King adaptations, which is actually better than the book. And uh, for people who like classic TV shows, I'm going to mention BritBox again, because you know how much I love my BritBox. And this week, they're bringing us Allo Allo and Dad's Army, just in time for lockdown. I'm just going to mention, if you want to scare yourself silly, then definitely worth seeing on Netflix is His House, which is a unique ghost story. And that's it for this week. Uh, But before we go, we'll do what we always do when we tell you about the things that we've been enjoying, either watching, reading, playing, and in a segment we like to call Neat Things. And we nearly got into a a virtual fist fight because we both were going to do the same neat thing. But I'm, I'm the gentleman that I am. I'm going to give it to Andy. Andy, tell me about your neat thing that you stole from me that was my neat thing. (laughs) <laughs> yep um we, we didn't realize we need to we need to plan this a bit more in advance don't we and actually um make sure that we're not going to clash truth seekers which landed on amazon this past weekend now this has been pitched and promoted as the reteaming of frost and peg and yet the pair don't actually share a lot of screen time this is mostly nick frost's series and to call it a british ghostbusters would be doing it a bit of a disservice, to be honest with you. Yeah, I agree. I'll, I'll it's got agree, a wit totally. and charm to it. It's got that like sly humour that the Ghostbusters series has. But I, yeah, I think you've mentioned it to me that it gives you the feel of a sapphire and steel kind of approach as well. It's spooky individual episodes with underlying thread that connects them all. Brilliantly cast. It's charming to watch. It's an easy watch. And it's got Malcolm McDowell in an absolutely delightful role as Frost's character's dad. Spooky goings-on, potential conspiracies, all the order of the day. Truth Seekers on Amazon is an absolute joy. I'm three episodes in, and I literally watched all three of them before heading to work yesterday. I started well, watching one, and I couldn't stop it. They're dead easy watches, aren't they? They're only a, a half hour each. And it, and the, the thing that they reminded me of is sort of Russell Davis, Russell T. Davis era Doctor Who. Uh, yeah. And there's that sense of 70s... Um, 70s ghost uh, TV series like Sapphire and Steel. It just had that element, which I really, really enjoyed. It was more of a throwback. And it's got some scary ghost sequences as well, which are, give it that sort of modern-day credibility at the same time. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, that was my neat thing as well. But So I'm going to go with Return of the Mandalorian. Uh, we're one episode in. It landed back on Disney Plus this last week. And it's just such a well-made series. It's everything that the last three Star Wars films wasn't. It's got heart, it's got style. The, the fact that it deals outside of, of the characters that we've, met, uh, that we've met before and expands the universe. It, it's, just a, it's just a well-written, not just a love letter to the Lucasverse, but it's, it's just well-written and, and well-thought-out. And this is what we want to see with Star Wars moving forward. We want to explore this bigger galaxy. And yes, it ties in, and and it's and certainly in in the first episode sets its stall out again as being a space western. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it, and it was great to see Timothy Oliphant, who was one of my favourite actors, kind of playing the character he played in Justified again. Um, so my neat, wasn't he marvelous? It, which is a great series. If you ever get a chance, I think it's on Prime. See Justified, but it's great to see the return of the Mandalorian. Yeah, with with the Mandalorian, it. It's embraced that sci-fi Western aspect with this first episode back. And like you say, Timothy Oliphant is just fabulously cast 
And I'd actually, I actually now want to see a spin-off series focusing just on him as a character. And that's it for this week's episode of The Film File. You can find us on Twitter at Film File UK. You can also find us on Instagram, where if you want to see uh, daring pictures, you're going to the wrong place. But you can <laughs> see us on Instagram as well. And that's it, Andy. I'll see you next week. Uh, enjoy Lockdown, the sequel. I'll try and find some films to watch. I guess we're going to be looking at a lot more of the streaming services over this next few weeks. Seems though we can't get into that darkened theatre that we love so well. Yeah, we'll miss it. Hopefully we'll be back in early December. And that's it for this week. But in the words of Sean Connery, there is nothing like a challenge to bring out the best in man. (laughs) 